Why do we nurse grudges? Why do we harbor resentment? Why do we get in bed with bitterness? Why do we feed on forgiveness? As we explore our text this morning from Matthew chapter 5, I hope that God in his mercy will shed light on these deep issues and bring true healing and reconciliation. Our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. I'll read God's word for us, and then we will pray together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning that you have given us. Thank you for your word, Lord, that it is living and active. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would illuminate our heart, our minds, our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in your word. Lord, we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for correcting, rebuking, teaching, and training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God, would be equipped for every good work. Lord, we pray that you guard us and keep us from the evil one. Lord, help us to hear your word. And by your grace, Lord, and by your grace alone, help us to do your word. We thank you for this time. We love you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, these verses can't simply be read in isolation or out of context. For if we do that, we will be in danger of misinterpreting and thus misapplying God's word to our lives, which we'll see in our text today, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were guilty of. So we, before we explore our text this morning, I first want to remind us of the bedrock of this mountaintop sermon. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes. He begins with gospel mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is for the poor, for those who know they are broken, spiritually impoverished, in desperate need. The kingdom of heaven is for those who know they are sinners and are desperate for God's mercy. Jesus will say in Luke 18, the one who is justified before God is the sinner who won't even look up to heaven, but beats his chest and cries out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is so crucial in order to rightly hear and rightly apply Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we feel under our feet the solid bedrock of God's mercy. So as we hear the command of Christ this morning and seek to hear God's word and do God's word, let me make this very clear. The only reason we hear and seek to follow Jesus 
is because of God's mercy. Jesus has graciously done a work in our hearts if we trust in Christ. God's word is very clear that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. So the only reason you or I are following Jesus, trusting in him, is because God has shown us mercy. We hated God. We hated the light. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We need to continually be reminded of the mercy of God, especially as we work through the weighty commands of Christ that we'll see in our text today. Our text this morning picks up where Chris finished last week. Verse 20. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus illustrates for us what true righteousness looks like. What it looks like to rightly hear God's word and then to rightly do God's word. He challenges the distorted interpretations and applications of the scribes and Pharisees and reveals the true spirit of God's holy word. So let me pose our question again. Why do we nurse grudges? Why do we harbor resentment? Why do we get in bed with bitterness? Why do we feed unforgiveness? I'll try to answer this question in two parts. Part number one, judgment. A deep root for why we nurse grudges is because we want judgment. We feel wronged, offended, hurt, disrespected, slighted, attacked, overlooked, So we want judgment. We want retribution. And in one sense, this is is normative. God made us as people who value justice. There is right and wrong. And yet often our perspective is distorted, perhaps by a huge log in our own eye. And perhaps we ourselves are more culpable than our perspective would lead us to believe. We don't know what we don't know. If I was honest with myself, I think I often like to play the role of the offended party. And perhaps you do too. And so either way, whether we are offended or we offend, there are consequences to our actions. Either how we sin against others or how we respond to others who've sinned against us. We see this clearly in the sixth commandment. Don't kill people. We want judgment. We want to take the law into our own hands. But if you do, there will be consequences. You yourself will be liable to judgment. But if this command of God is merely taken externally, don't kill, and we never explore the internal motivations behind murder, or never examine how to positively keep this command of God, if we never lift the hood to see the spirit that is driving this law, we totally miss it. The spirit behind this command, the positive side of this law is to protect life. Life is sacred. Life is precious. We are God's image bearers. We are the crown of God's creation. When we kill someone, in a sense, we are blaspheming God. We are taking something that bears his name, bears his signature, God's masterpiece, and we are desecrating it, despising it, destroying it. We are treating it with contempt. So yes, a functional, practical aspect of the sixth commandment is to not kill. The positive is to protect life. 
But again, Jesus listens to God's word far better than you or I. And he hears that melodic line and shows us how simply not murdering someone isn't the essence of what it means to obey the sixth commandment. So let's dive into our text. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. First of all, listen to the authority of Jesus here. He just quoted the Torah. He just quotes the Old Testament. Holy writ, sacred scripture. And then this 30-year-old man says, but I say to you. Don't lose sight of that. Yes, we believe that Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin. Yet put yourself in these people's shoes or sandals. They're still trying to figure out who this guy was, who this guy is. Who can say these kinds of things and speak with such authority? God can. Now we need to be careful here lest we see Jesus trying to do away with the law. Jesus was no Marcionite. He is not supplanting the old. This isn't thesis antithesis. This is thesis and hyperthesis. Like that modulation that Chris mentioned last week. Same tune, but just intensifying. Jesus is showing us the true interpretation and showing us the spirit behind God's law. John Calvin comments on this. He says, we must not imagine Christ to be a new legislator, a lawmaker, who adds anything to the eternal righteousness of his father. We must listen to him as a faithful expounder, that we may know what is the nature of the law, what is its object, and what is its extent. Jesus, the only truly faithful expounder of God's word, is cutting to the heart. Jesus read and studied God's word. He delighted in God's word. He was that tree planted by streams of water that Chris mentioned from Psalm 1 last week, who meditated on God's word day and night. And one of the books Jesus quoted from most frequently was the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the final charge to the Israelites before they go into the promised land. He's again giving the law a second time. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. If the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. We see this heart theme throughout the prophets. Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of God putting a new heart, a new a right heart within us. The prophet Joel telling of God's people, telling God's people to rend their heart and not their garments. The psalmist crying out, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. I desire to do your will. Your law is within my heart. So this internalizing of God's law is not a new idea. It is a faithful exposition of God's word that leads to right application. If the law is merely taken externally, it leads to hypocrisy and self-righteousness. So let's continue to listen to Jesus interpret this commandment. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Are you serious? If I am angry with my brother, I am liable to judgment? That seems very steep. But again, what was the purpose of the sixth commandment? To protect life. And not only in a flat, keep heart pumping, lungs breathing sense, but to honor God and his creation, to cherish what God loves. So the sixth commandment isn't simply protecting life in a generic sense. It is protecting persons, real people. As someone made in God's image, I'm called to protect people, to value people. As Dale Bruner says in his wonderful commentary, the Christ book, at the core of the commandment against killing is divine displeasure with contempt for human beings. God is not pleased. It grieves God when we, when you and I, have contempt for human beings. Jesus continues the middle of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This anger towards your brother is now intensifying and spilling out. As Jesus would later say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I appreciate how the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates verse 22 here. It says, and whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. The two insults here in the Greek are raka and mores. Raka has this idea of being a good-for-nothing, a stup- stupid, a numbskull, literally an empty head. The word mores is where we get our word moron, again meaning stupid, dull, insipid. You get the point. You really don't like this person. You are judging this person. You are disrespecting them. You are devaluing them. You have contempt for this person. And God takes divine displeasure with that. So you and I, when we say these words, when we let this alphabet soup of angry words simmer in our hearts, we are casting judgment on that person's worth and value. Now, some of you may be reading the King James Version, and your version says in verse 22, angry without cause. But most modern translations do not include those words without cause, because the earliest manuscripts don't have it. So the thought is that it was most likely a later addition, perhaps in some ways to soften Jesus' command here. And I think if we were honest with ourselves, most of us would prefer to read this verse that way, angry without cause. We want to feel justified for our anger. Again, getting back to this idea of judgment, we want judgment. We want justice. We want the gavel in our hand. And when we don't get what we want, our anger Our bitterness begins to build, and we keep stoking that fire of resentment in our hearts and minds. We convince ourselves that this person clearly did something that justifies or gives us license to nurse this grudge and to judge them. Let's take a closer look at this word anger that Jesus uses here to help us understand more of what he is saying. Because perhaps you're tempted to feel like the only way you can actually obey this text and not be angry is if you're just like comatose, milk toast. No pulse, flat line. You're just never getting riled about anything that anyone says or anyone does to you or to other people. Or perhaps you're thinking about Ephesians 4, where Paul tells us to be angry and yet not sin. You're trying to figure out how to wrestle, reconcile these two passages. 
Well, let's look at this word angry. The Greek word here is orgizomenos. The root word is orgizo, to be provoked, irritated, angry. But this use of the word here in the text this morning, orgizomenos, is actually a present tense participle. Connotes the idea of being angry, remaining angry. Or as I posed in our question earlier, nursing a grudge. Bruner calls it a portable anger. You carry it with you wherever you go. It's ongoing anger. And here's where I hope we can really begin to hear God's heart. There are countless things that upset us that we get angry about. It doesn't mean those are all justified, but, but this is a given. It happens. We live in a broken world. We are sinners. We are sinned against, and we sin against others. And we are called to hate sin with a passion. But first and foremost, our own sin. But the question for us is, what do we do with our anger? Does our anger move us toward reconciliation or does it move us towards murder? Or let me ask it a different way. What do we value more? Do we value the person or the offense? When God tells us not to kill, it is because he is saying that every life, every person has incredible God-given beauty, value, and worth. And when we are angry with someone, when we nurse that grudge, when we resent someone, in essence, we are valuing that offense and the demand for our version of judgment more than we value that person. We want murder rather than reconciliation. We want them to be punished for what they did. And we nurse that grudge. Now, as an aside in our text, there is no effort, it seems, on Jesus' part to explore whether or not the anger is valid, warranted, or justified. It's never addressed in the text. There seems to be no effort by Jesus to find the guilty party. We aren't given any of those details. So whether you are the offender or the offendee, this command applies to all of us in our anger. So we get angry. Anger flares up for whatever reason. Now, what do we do with it? It's like that little flame, dry tinder and a spark and poof, you get a flame. But how do you turn that little flicker into a raging fire? You nurse it. You get down there, you gently blow on those embers to get them really going. And then once it begins to take off, you stoke that fire, you stoke that fire and you keep it going all night. You keep feeding the fire, you keep feeding the anger. And it feels good for a while. But then the flames keep growing and growing, and it will begin to consume you. This ongoing anger, this nursing a grudge, this harboring resentment, it is an action. It is a deed. You are not a passive participant. It is a choice, a decision that you and I make. We get down, we blow on those coals, we grab the stick, we stoke that fire. And God says that when we make that choice, when we do that deed, we are liable to hellfire for it. This isn't something out of, outside of our control. It is a habit, a skill that you and I have developed. And perhaps we've developed it very well. So the more we choose to nurse that grudge, the more ingrained that habit becomes. The more difficult it is to stop. And so when we continually pick up that portable anger, when we continue to carry around and nurse that grudge, it is a real deed, a real choice, and we are accountable and answerable to God for it. You may think it's just internal, but it is often a very public act. 
Proverbs 15, 13 says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face. When we got out of the hospital with Coulter, life just really seemed lousy, fighting depression. And at elder meetings and at church, my brother Dan, with his genuine, jovial, strong handshake, would always ask me or often ask me, is your heart happy in Jesus? Why would he ask me that? <laughs> he saw my face. <laughs> it wasn't. Now, obviously, we can, we can masquerade and we can play games. But what goes on on the inside is very much a public act. Very much a public act. And so if we continue to carry around that anger and we stoke that fire of unforgiveness, Jesus says that we are in danger of hell fire. That word hell fire, some of you may know, is Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. It's thought to be a valley south of Jerusalem where King Ahaz and King Manasseh committed countless murders by offering child sacrifices to pagan gods. It's viewed as a cursed place. So the word Gehenna was used frequently by Jesus to denote God's judgment, unquenchable fire. Friends, the stakes are high here. We're talking about anger. Perhaps you think Jesus is being too dramatic. I'm being too dramatic about how bad anger and resentment are. Well, consider with me a couple of biblical figures for test cases, okay? Cain, start at the beginning. Genesis 4, Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice and Cain becomes jealous. God's word says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain is offended. He becomes angry. And God warns him, don't let that anger consume you. It wants to rule over you, but you must take action and rule over it. But sadly, you know the story. Cain's anger, Cain's anger was stoked, fermented. He nursed that grudge, and he finally slaughtered his brother. The first act of murder in the history of humanity. And Abel's blood this day cries out from the ground. Consider King Saul, 1 Samuel. God's people asked for a king. God says, I'm your king. They say, we want a king we can see like all the other nations. So God gives them Saul. But Saul becomes impatient. He loses the crown. So God anoints young David to be king. So one day, David goes out to visit his brothers. They're on the front lines against the Philistines. And he witnesses this behemoth Goliath taunting and threatening the army of Israel. Now David trusts the Lord. So this young, ruddy shepherd who's wrestled lions and bears cries out, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he goes to battle with Goliath and he kills him. This launches David's military career. He becomes increasingly successful in battle. So the older ladies write him a song. Saul's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Saul is livid. In 1 Samuel 18 it says, and Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000. To me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. From that day on, Saul nursed that grudge. He provided safe harbor for that ship of resentment. He blew and blew on those embers of unforgiveness, and he stoked that fire, and boy, did it rage. You know the story. Numerous times, he tries to spear David to the wall 
while David is peacefully playing the lyre for him. And then David flees for his life, and so Saul goes on this enraged manhunt seeking to murder David. So this burning anger, this resentment, this bitterness, this unforgiveness is deadly. Murder for Cain or attempted murder for Saul didn't just happen. It began with contempt for a person. And that contempt, that anger was nurtured and nursed and it grew and it grew until it consumed him. And Jesus is warning us that anger will consume us. We want judgment to fall on others, but in so doing, judgment will actually fall on us. Friends, nursing that grudge is poison. It is deadly, and it will destroy you. So let me ask our question again. Why do we nurse grudges? Why do we harbor resentment? Why do we get in bed with bitterness? Why do we feed unforgiveness? Partly because we want judgment. But directly tied to this desire for judgment is that we are blind to God's mercy. Part number two, mercy. It's why I started this sermon with reminding us of how Jesus began his sermon on the mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor are impoverished in desperate need of mercy. Do you and I see ourselves as truly impoverished and in desperate need of God's mercy? Let's go back to our text. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, now let's pause. Ask a simple question here. Where's the altar? It's at the temple, right? Before the temple, what had God given his people? Tabernacle. God was choosing to dwell amidst his people, to pitch his tent with his people. God is holy. We are sinful, but God is so full of mercy that he's made a way for sinful people to be in communion with a holy God. How? He can't just, he can't just overlook it like Mac talked about the judge with the catechism question. He can't just say, oh, you're sorry, okay, it's, it's, it's okay. There has to be justice. There has to be judgment. So how does God do that? He provides a substitutionary sacrifice. You and I have broken God's law. You and I deserve God's judgment for sin. But God is merciful and he has provided a way for you and I to be reconciled to him, to be in relationship with him, to enjoy his glorious presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. He's come to dwell with us that we might be a joyful people, fully forgiven, fully forgiven for all of our wrongdoing. Because of that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that really the heart of our worship? Thanking God for his mercy? Isn't that what we sang this morning? Your love has saved me, but by your grace I now draw near. Amen? In verse 23, we see this individual drawing near to the temple of God to worship. He's drawing near by grace. 
God, by sheer mercy, has provided a way whereby a sacrifice can be made for sin so that you and I don't experience the wrath and the judgment of God. Are you beginning to see the irony here? You're going to the temple to worship and praise God for his mercy. And within, within you, inside of you, you are nursing a grudge. You're wanting judgment to fall on your brother or sister. You're harboring resentment, wishing that they would somehow suffer and pay for the wrong that they did to you. Or perhaps someone has that anger towards you and you're aware of it and you haven't made any efforts toward reconciliation or forgiveness. Do you see why Jesus says, stop? If there is bad blood between you and another brother or sister because of something that has transpired in the past that hasn't been dealt with and instead it's festered and festered, it needs to be dealt with first. Mercy needs to come to that relationship if you're truly going to worship God and thank God for being such a merciful God. You need to be reconciled to your brother. So leave your gift at the altar and first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. In a very convicting way, Jesus takes the two greatest commandments and shows how inextricably linked they are. We are called first to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. But what Jesus is saying here is that if we don't love our brother if we don't long to be reconciled to our brother or to our sister, for mercy to triumph over judgment in our relationships, then how can we truly say we love God and bring an offering to worship God? We can't. Listen to John the Beloved in his epistle. He says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us his command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. So we nurse those grudges towards others because we fail to see how merciful God has been to us. Friends, this is, this is crucial. This is needed in everyday life. We desperately need to see the mercy of God, that God doesn't treat you and I as our sins deserve. It will profoundly affect the way that we, twe- twe- that we treat those around us. I have to tell my kids relationships are built on trust. Relationships in the home, whether it's husband and wife or siblings or housemates. Relationships with work, with your coworkers, or Relationships here at the gathering or Lentz Baptist. The reality is that the longer we do life together, the sweeter it becomes. But in some ways, the more difficult it becomes. With the ones you are closest to, you often have the greatest expectations. You've worked with this coworker for 10 years. You've lived with this spouse for 20 years. You've been in a community group with this family for five years. But you get to know them more. And in a sense, you expect more out of them. And so these relationships also provide great opportunity for disappointment and hurts. Sooner or later, and sadly time and time and time again, You will sin against those you are closest to. You will sin against those you are closest to, and they will sin against you. Well, if relationships are built on trust, and we are constantly in small ways or in big ways breaking that trust, what hope do we have? 
God's mercy. Without God's mercy, without his free forgiveness of not treating us as our sins deserve, but staying committed, staying invested, choosing to dwell continually with his people, what hope do we have in our fragile, fractured, tenuous relationships? What hope do we have that we're going to stay committed to each other? I was having coffee with a dear friend the other day. Not a dear friend, a friend. I hope he's a dear friend. He's a new friend. He's not a Christian, and, and we were talking about many heady, deep, theological, uh, philosophical reasons for why I believe Christianity is true. He's come to one of the, the class that we teach one, t- one time, and we, we've uh, begun to have a, a friendship. And um, talking about all these different reasons why, why I think Christianity is true. But one of the most basic and perhaps pragmatic reasons that I shared with him for why I believe in Jesus Christ is because life is all about relationships. And in all those relationships, there are going to be hurts, there are going to be disappointments. We commit to each other, and then we disappoint. We commit to each other, and then we disappoint. We commit to each other, and we disappoint. It's not always intentional, but it happens over and over again. And so our temptation is going to be to fall away, to check out, to begin to distance ourselves from each other. And it may not be an external distancing. We may not be that tough to just say, I'm out of here. It may be all the more dangerous that we begin to distance ourselves from each other on the inside. Still sharing the same house, still at the same job, still at the same church, but inside, checked out. We've fallen away. And it is only the forgiveness of Christ. Hear me, brothers and sisters. It is only the forgiveness of Christ, the mercy of God, that will keep us from falling away, that will keep our relationships from becoming transactional, cold, jaded, suspect, and superficial. This is real stuff we're talking about today. We desperately, by God's grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit, opening our eyes to see the mercy of God. So, how do we break this pernicious, vicious habit of nursing grudges towards our brothers and sisters. The solution is not to beat yourself up for being such an angry, judgmental person. We need to cry out for God to help us see how incredibly gracious he's been, how incredibly merciful he's been towards us. So let me provide two practical steps for how God's mercy can triumph over your judgment. First practical step. Meditate on God's mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I didn't look down at my notes. Now, how can I say that to you? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because some point in the time in the past, I looked at that scripture, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, and it's somewhere in here or in here, or hopefully both, right? It's inside of us. We've got to meditate on God's word. So take time this week to meditate on God's mercy. Hide scriptures in your heart and mind that remind you that God doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. If we've been nursing a grudge for a long time, that tape recording, okay, I dated myself, yes. Uh, not, not actual tape, um, but tape recordings 
before eight, after eight tracks, before CDs, that tape recording, that nursing grudge narrative has been very possibly playing in your mind, in your heart for a long time. And that's one reason I believe in, in verse 25, Jesus says quickly, be reconciled quickly. The more we nurse that grudge, we keep playing that tape over and over in our heart and mind, the more ingrained that habit becomes and the more difficult it becomes to break that habit until ultimately it destroys us, it consumes us. So quickly, quickly, hide God's word in your heart. And again, that action, that deed, us pushing play and listening to those tapes, we are responsible to God for that. And our culture would love to say, you know, you can't control it. It's just, it's outside of your control. I can't help nursing that grudge. But no, no. By God's grace, you can change those narratives. You can replace bad habits with good habits. Those old tapes, those narratives of judgment towards that person that you have an offense with can be replaced with God's melody of mercy. So let me give you three verses that I'm going to try to, to meditate on this week. And I would encourage you to do the same. Psalm 103, 8 to 12. Let me read it for you. Psalm 103, 8 to 12. We're going to sing it during communion. One of my favorite songs. <laughs> the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah 7, 18 to 19. Micah 7, 18 to 19. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Psalm 130, verses 1 to 5. Psalm 130, 1 to 5. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So first practical step, meditate on God's mercy. Second practical step, pursue your brother or sister. If you know that a brother or sister has an offense against you, by all means, God is commanding you here in our text this morning to do whatever is within your power to be reconciled. As Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And it may be costly. Think about those who heard, first heard Jesus tell them to leave their gift at the altar and go to be reconciled to their brother. Where did they live most likely? Where was Jesus preaching this Sermon on the Mount? Near Capernaum, north of the Sea of Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, the northern end. Where is the altar? Where is the temple? Jerusalem. Google Maps. 101 miles on foot. 34 hours nonstop 
to walk from Capernaum to Jerusalem. Don't you think the temptation might have been to be like, it can't be that important. Let me worship God and then I'll go do that. No, Jesus says, stop. Being reconciled to your brother is one of the truest evidences of true worship. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. So be reconciled today, insofar as it is possible for you, to that person you're at odds with. In closing, brothers and sisters, in many ways, we become what we want. We become what we want. Do you want judgment or do you want mercy? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke 6, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating mercy. God has provided a sacrifice for sin through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus freely gave up his life as a sacrifice for all our sins against God and against our fellow man. Jesus died for all those grudges we've nursed, all that anger and bitterness, all that resentment and unforgiveness, all of our wicked contempt for people made in God's image. Christ died for it all. All is forgiven in Christ. And he did it all to reconcile us to God. He of any had every right to nurse a grudge, to harbor resentment, to grow bitter towards us for our constant rebellion and betrayal. But on that cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Rather than try to figure out who was to blame and who deserved the judgment, Jesus gladly laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin. Do you see that marvelous mercy this morning? Do you feel that bedrock of God's mercy this morning? Do you hear that sweet melody of mercy this morning? Brothers and sisters, I appeal to you. I appeal to my own soul. Let mercy triumph over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that Christ died for all those grudges, all that anger, all that resentment, all that bitterness that we have had or even have at this moment, Lord, towards those who have sinned against us or we've sinned against. Lord, I thank you that Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Lord, I pray that your mercy would so captivate us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would open our eyes where we are blind, Lord, where we don't know what we don't know, that you open our eyes to see the mercy of God, to feel the mercy of God, to hear the mercy of God this morning. And Lord, would it produce glorious gospel fruit in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, that we would be a people who forgive and forbear and show mercy Instead of falling away, we'd fall forward, fall deeper and deeper into those relationships, even knowing that we're probably going to be sinned against or we're going to sin against others. But we are confident in the mercy of God that God is at work in us. And he has called us and committed us to these relationships, Lord. So, Lord, help us, Lord. We thank you for mercy. We thank you that mercy has triumphed over judgment, Lord. 
We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he rose again and is seated now at the right hand of the Father, even now making intercession for us. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for gathering us this morning. We love you. We bless you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.